Welcome, everybody, to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host, and this is episode 90. I think that all of the episodes that we've hosted on the podcast involve some form of research. I could be wrong. Some, some could just be mere opinions, especially the ones where I'm just speaking. But most involve research. And research, ideally, is based on primary evidence sources. This is a kind of fundamental axiom of historical research that in some fashion, no matter how abstract or complex or overarching your reconstruction of the past is, at some point its feet have to touch the ground, right? They have to be based in critically examined primary evidence from the past. This can be textual sources, archaeological sources, and so forth. And it's not enough to just cite them or you know, follow them sort of uncritically. You, you have to actually examine what it is that they're saying to us. What were they saying then? How can we repurpose them to speak to our historical research interests? And the process of scholarship is cumulative in this sense. In other words, we build increasingly more complex and comprehensive and overarching models that incorporate other people's research. And to some degree, we have to trust that the research that we're building upon is itself rooted in a critical examination of actual uh, primary sources course, you often find cases where those sources don't exist, where, or they're not cited, or it's based on a misunderstanding, or just a myth, just something that someone made up at some point. And what happens often is that these elaborate house of cards sometimes get built on an original error that may have been made 60 or 70 years ago. It wasn't based in a source or it was based in a text that was later revealed to be a forgery or an archaeological stratum that was redated or something like that, and yet no one had gone back to check all the footnotes and follow the trail backwards, you know, to back to the ground or into the ground or whatever, and, and sort of pulled down the whole structure. Occasionally that happens, and it causes some convulsions. But generally there's a lot of reliance and trust that the groundbreaking work that lies at the foundation of all of our reconstructions and conceptual models was done and done properly and is reliable. And we often think that we are always critically examining the sources, but actually if you were to look closely at the work that all scholars do, myself included, you will find that there are significantly larger doses of trust in the work of others than than you might think at first. But what if that whole apparatus didn't exist? What if you didn't have all those decades and centuries of scholarship to build on, and all you had were some primary sources. I remember when I was in grad school, I sometimes fantasized about that scenario. Like, what if we could just clear the entire slate and begin again just from the sources? I I knew that was a fantasy because even the sources are mediated through scholarship already. Like, we don't necessarily have unmediated access to the sources, even in manuscript form. Okay, but just as a kind of thought experiment, you know, if we had to do it all again, would it end up looking anything like what it looks like now? Well, as it turns out, there actually were some people in history who were in a predicament very much like that. And we're going to be talking about one of them today. This is a 16th century German philologist named Martin Crucius. And as a philologist, he was a Hellenist. And primarily a classicist, but at the time the distinction between classical studies and sort of quote late things didn't really exist. Uh, So these scholars were just awash in a world of manuscripts and early textual editions, and they weren't so focused on you know explicit periodizations. They didn't necessarily define their identity in terms of fields. Those fields didn't exist. Um, Crucius was a person who was fundamentally interested in the Greek language, and actually in all of its history. Um, He even took an interest in modern Greek, as you will hear. And he was very interested in Byzantine history, um, in part because 
um, in Germany in the 16th century, there's a great deal of concern about the Ottoman Empire, and late Byzantine sources had a lot to say about its origins. Uh, but he was generally interested in, in history, especially in, in narrative texts that were written in Greek. But he did not have much by way of a scholarly apparatus. He just had most of those texts and was faced with the task of, sort of reconstructing Byzantine history from them without being able to rely on um, you know, chronologies and author biographies. And so he had to do all of that work himself, like just read the text and try to figure out who's writing this, what else did they write, when were they writing, how do I relate this text to other texts, um, did this author use that author, and just kind of try to put a first basic order to some of this picture while at the same time collecting interesting Greek words that he found. He loved to do that. At the same time, Crucius was in the first or second generation of Northern European um, humanists who were not trained in Greek by a Greek speaker, right? So someone from uh, the, the world of late Byzantium. So all of the philologists who, um, you know, fled or left Constantinople or other Greek-speaking lands and went to Italy and other parts of Europe. And, you know, one of their assets was their ability to teach Greek, and they did so. By the early 16th century, that tradition was being picked up and developed um, in th their own ways by European scholars um, in, in the West and the North. Actually, one of the things going on in the sixth century was the effort to change the way that Greek was pronounced uh, from the modern Greek pronunciation that everyone had been taught in up to that point to what today is called the Erasmian system, though Erasmus himself was not in favor of that change. That's a different story. We might do a podcast episode on that too. My guest today is Richard Callis, who is a professor at Utrecht University. Uh, this is in the Netherlands. It's Richard's first post as assistant professor. I think he's just starting there now. Congrats, Richard, on that success. So for years, Richard has been working on Martin Crucius. He's a kind of all-around figure in the 16th century. And he has a forthcoming book on him from Harvard University Press. And I very much look forward to its appearance uh, but in the meantime, my attention was caught by the, a chapter on Martin Crucius, a fascinating exploration of his scholarship that appeared in the volume The Invention of Byzantium that was um, edited by Nate and Jake, uh, uh, Nate Aschenbrenner and Jake Ransohoff. Uh, 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 Jake, a uh, former guest of the podcast uh, episode on blinding. And Richard's chapter just caught my attention for its erudition and clarity, but also because it made me rethink that experience of, wow, having to come to terms with this material without being able to rely on like all of the colleagues and the scholarship that's accumulated over all of these centuries, just kind of uh, lost at sea in all of these texts. And so I thought it would be fun to talk with him about that and get a bit of a sense of what it was like to study the civilization at the dawn of Byzantine studies before there really was such a thing in any kind of coherent sense. Okay, so let's get to my discussion with Richard Callis. Uh, also, thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. So here we go. Hello, Richard, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Also, congratulations for the new position. Thanks. Yeah, it's wonderful. I'm really excited. So why don't you start by telling us who Martin Crucius was and why he was an important figure for the origin of Byzantine studies as an academic field in Western Europe? Yeah, so Martin Crucius is not a household name. Um, he was a professor of Greek at the University of Tübingen in southern Germany in the 16th century. So he lived from 1526 to 1607. And he was important because he wrote this um, book called the Turco Graecia, Turkish Greece which was a ethnographic study of the Ottoman Greek world. And it has been used by Byzantinists and scholars of modern Greek for centuries, basically since it came out in the 16th century. And Crucis was also one of the earliest readers of Byzantine materials. So in the 16th century, a lot of the Byzantine chronicles and histories and texts um, got published or circulated in manuscript. And Crucis collected dozens and dozens of these. And most of these, surprisingly, have survived in Tübingen in Germany. And um, he covered those texts in layers and layers and layers of annotation. 
And all of this material, so the manuscripts, the printed books, as well as Croesus's published work, the Dukogaiki I just mentioned, all of that tells us a lot about how Croesus in the 16th century tried to kind of create or make sense of Byzantine history. Um, so he was an important professor and an important reader of uh, Greek materials. So he was a professor of Greek or what was his specialty? Yes. Yeah, so um, he was a professor of Greek at the University of Tübingen, and that meant a great many things. So thank you um, for asking. So Greek usually meant um, Greek poetry and Greek prose, so people, um, writers like Homer and Thucydides, um, but also rhetoric. So mm -hmm. a lot of these texts, um, like Homer and Thucydides and Plato and Virgil, all these ancient texts in the early modern period were read um, for the rhetoric they offered or the lessons about life and, and character. And it was Crucius's um, job to teach these texts, not only the poetry and the prose, but also the kind of rhetorical background of these texts and what students could take from that. Right. So, I mean, in many respects, a recognizable, recognizably as a classicist. I hope so. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know all about reading Byzantine texts in a classics program. <laughs> okay, so tell us a little bit about his major contribution, this Turgo Grecia. Why did he devote his interest in that? And why did that become his most important contribution? Yeah, that is, so it's essentially um, a book that is unlike any other in the early modern period. So Crucis is not the only one who became interested in the plight of the Greeks under Ottoman rule, because that's essentially the topic of the Turco Gaikia. So after the fall of um, Constantinople, there, all sorts of stories were known about the Greeks and Greek life under Ottoman rule, but very few authors from the 15th and 16th century in Europe actually um, inquired into the culture and the religion and the language of the Greeks after um, the Turks arrived on the political scene. And Crucis was one of the first to, to do this. And he did so through various means. So there were all sorts of Greek um, Orthodox refugees who came to Tübingen and he welcomed those into his home. He interviewed them about their language, their religion, their dress, their customs, everything. He also maintained a correspondence with the Greek Orthodox Patriarch. And through diplomacy, through a chaplain who was a friend of his, he collected all sorts of manuscripts. So manuscript letters, but also chronicles. Um, so chronicle of um, the political history and the religious history of Constantinople in the 15th, 14th to 15th centuries. And all of that material he collected and much, much more. And at some point he decided to edit, edit those materials. And the, the, basically the result was the Turco Graecia. And why it was so such an important book and such an influential book is because it did not offer a kind of narrative history that, that maybe, you know, um, People who listen to this podcast are familiar with the kind like of um, the Alexiot or any other Byzantine chronicle, which are all narrative in form. So Cruces of Turkukaike was not a narrative history. It was rather sort of what I've called an archive. It was an archive of primary source materials from the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries related to Greek life under Ottoman rule. And that was unique. None of his direct colleagues wrote or produced books like this. And um, some of it came from direct observation of the Greeks themselves who were living under mm -hmm. Turkish rule. And so it was unlike any other book in the early modern period. And it became so influential because um, people like Edward Gibbon, um, famous 18th century historian, and later historians um, who were interested in kind of the Eastern Roman uh, history, found in Crucius a singular source for studying the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, because a lot of the materials from that period that offered a Greek perspective on history are lost. Right. And all of those are still contained in the Turkogaikia. Right. And was he motivated at all by like contemporary fears of the expansion of the Ottoman Empire into Europe? I'm sure that must have been like a pressing issue, right? A hundred percent. So it was very, very common in Crucius's world, certainly in early modern Germany, where he was from, um, to think of the Turks as a sort of existential threat to the Christian way of life. So in this, a lot of pamphlets and books circulated about um, the kind of damage the Turks had done to the Greeks and what they may or what they could do 
um, to basically Latin Christianity. On the other hand, that's not the sole reason why Crucius was interested in this. He was also interested in this world as a classicist, so he wanted to know what, what was left of ancient Athens, what mm. was left of the culture of antiquity and the, the sort of scholarly world of antiquity. You know, Athens as a capital of learning and, 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 and philosophy. And he was also interested in this world from a religious perspective. So Crucius was a deeply pious Lutheran who believed that he uh, and his beliefs were very similar to um, the way Jesus um, practiced his beliefs. And the Greek Orthodox Church at the time, and actually up to this day, also believes it's the original church. So the church um, of the apostles, the followers of Jesus. And um, Crucis really hoped in talking to Greek Orthodox Christians to find an ally and to find someone um, that could confirm that his beliefs were correct. So there are different reasons why he reached out um, and became interested in, in, in the Ottoman Greek world. So political, religious, and scholarly. Yeah, and he's someone who's like, what, the first generation of Lutherans, essentially. Um, Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, there was this brief moment when Protestants thought that they could form some sort of alliance or access of understanding with the Orthodox Church, and there was some kind of context, but it didn't quite turn out the way they hoped. No, it didn't work out at all, but he was definitely of that generation. Yeah. So his parents were the first who converted uh, to Lutheranism, who embraced mm -hmm. Luther's message. So Crucis was the first to be born Lutheran, right. um, and that definitely left an imprint on his, on his life and his, and his learning. Right. So let's turn back to this dossier that he put together about the yeah. rise of the Ottomans. Uh, so how did he use uh, Byzantine sources? I mean, sources that we would recognize as Byzantine, like pre-fall. How did he sort of collate these with other kinds of materials? Is it primarily the the historians, uh, you know, like the historians of the fall of Constantinople or what other kinds of texts is he using? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so first of all, basically to clarify what, what Cruz has collected in the Tokugaika mostly narrated everything that was a transitional moment between when sort of Byzantine history morphed into Ottoman history. But Crucius's um, books in his study and the ones that have survived show that he was interested in the longer history of Byzantium and basically the longer history of the Greeks. So he collected all sorts of historical uh, chronicles um, from Laonikos Cholkokondiles' histories, which narrated um, the fall of the, uh, Constantinople in 1453, to Anna Alexia, to Zonaras, um, another 12th century author. So basically, most of the famous Byzantine chronicles he collected. And what he did, and this is quite extraordinary, we can gauge from the notes that he left on the title page and in the margins, we can kind of gauge how he tried to make sense of all of this material. So you have to imagine that this is a world where there's no apparatus, there's no guidance, there are no dictionaries, no like biographical, hardly any biographical dictionaries. There are no regular dictionaries for Byzantine Greek. Um, there are no, there's no lexicographical material available. Crucius really had to work from scratch. And what he did is, and we can gauge this from the uh, notes that he left in the margins, his marginalia, as he tried to align all of these histories that often narrated the history of the Greeks from um, creation all the way to the 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. And all of this massive amount of material had to be put on some sort of timeline. And that's what Crucius did. Hmm. So you made some interesting observations in your chapter. Um... That about uh, Laonikos Kalkokondilis and, and how he used him. So, because this is an author close to, to my heart, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So, obviously, fascinating writer because he really was kind of the first author to narrate this, you know, transitional moment in which the Ottomans kind of take over from the Byzantines or the Greeks um, in the political realm. And for Crucius, this was obviously a source. Um, to learn about the fall of Constantinople. So like many um, early modern scholars, Crucis was obsessed or interested, at least, in the fall of Constantinople. And we really see from his notes that that particular passage in his book is rich in annotation. So basically, Crucis wanted to know everything there was to find out about um, the siege, to um, what happened mm -hmm. to the Byzantine um, royal family afterwards. So all of this was really, you know, uh, really rich material that Crucis could draw from. On the other hand, Crucis also used this text 
to kind of create a genealogy of the basically the Byzantine emperors. So again, Crucis had nothing to work with. And for him, it was not entirely clear which author, um, sorry, which ruler followed the other. So what he did is he used um, Holocaustiles to figure out the, who the last Byzantine emperors were, but also who the first Ottoman sultans were, in order to create this kind of continuum in which we can really see how one sultan takes over from the last Byzantine emperor. And this really connects to the other books in his study. So he used Anna Konena's history to think about, you know, the um, the 12th century um, Byzantine royal house and Byzantine emperors. He talked. He, he read Sonaras again for the same reason to basically create a timeline of all of these um, major influential rulers in Byzantine history. Yeah, we'll come back a bit later to the question of how do you write yeah. Byzantine history from scratch uh, because it's something that fascinates me. Uh, but let's stay here with the period that he was working about. So we tend to see a, a rupture. Uh, between late Byzantine and early Ottoman being the fall of Constantinople and that one sort of period or civilization or area of interest ends and another one begins and Ottoman history sort of enters out of its prequel phase and becomes sort of, you know, the established Ottoman empire that, um, you know, is, is headquartered in Constantinople and so forth. But you argue that he saw more continuity between these two and that he kind of saw this as a big unit, not not a big rupture. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think what you just described is a development that happens in the, you know, right when Crucis is living, but but largely crystallizes later uh, in the 17th, 18th, perhaps even 19th centuries. Um, so obviously for Crucis, the fall of Constantinople was monumental. Um, again, he had this almost existential fear of the Ottoman Turks and what they may do to the, to the Christian way of life. On the other hand, he also knew by talking to Greeks, by corresponding with the Greek Orthodox patriarch, um, by reading Greek chronicles like the one by Laonikos Chalcokondylis and others that he collected, that Byzantine history did not end with, in 1453. Um, the Greek church survived, Greek learning, survived to some extent, although changed, and we'll probably come back to that too. Mm. And Greek life changed, but survived. So in that sense, if you look at Crucius through the lens of the Turkogaikia, it seems that he saw it definitely as a continuum, because the Greeks, did, their lives did not end in 1453. And we also see this in the way he annotates his books, and he tries to draw up this genealogy. Um, so in one of his manuscripts, he creates this sort of parallel genealogy. On the one hand, there is this beautiful tree from um, of all the Byzantine emperors from, I think, from the 11th century onwards, perhaps even earlier. And then on the other side of the page is another genealogy where Crucis lists perfectly all the ru rulers in the House of Osman, so all the Ottoman rulers. And I think by basically placing those side by side, which he later reproduced in his printed works, we can get a sense of how he saw this as one at once as a shift, a major political shift, but on the other hand, also as a continuum. In that sense, mm -hmm. sultans took over where and Byzantine emperors um, basically left off. Yeah, and that's a valid perspective in many ways. If you think about the fact that um, you know, Greek speakers had been under Turkish rule in Asia Minor since the 11th century and in the Balkans uh, for a century before the fall of Constantinople. So the Ottoman Empire, even without Constantinople, was very, very real um, and had you know put down roots in those regions well before the fall of Constantinople. So the, the two sort of very much overlap. And I think he was kind of interested in that whole period of transition. Um, yeah, hundred yeah. percent, and I think that also ties into the fact that Crucius saw, and this is definitely the Lutheran him speaking, that the Greek world was to some extent in decline. In that sense, he very much um, was in agreement with what other Europeans observed, probably for the wrong reasons. But he also saw this world as a world in decline. But for him, this did not, and this is important, this did not start with the Ottomans. For him, he already understood that when the Byzantine, while the Byzantine Empire was still standing, that basically in terms of language and in terms of religion, there were 
there were what he called corruptions. And in that sense, it's I think it's an important corrective that in Crucis's world, 1453 was a decisive marker, mm. but it was also part of a longer um, story of decline that set in long before the Ottomans arrived on the political scene. So you said that he corresponded with the Patriarch at Constantinople. So how does that look? Like he's, he writes, like, hey, I'm a professor of Greek in Germany, and I've got some questions. <laughs> like, what exact? how does this correspondence play out? It's an extraordinary correspondence. It's really crazy to think about it, but it, it started surprisingly exactly like you just described it. So it, it is in, in many ways a very, basically a very serendipitous affair. So in the 1570s, uh, Maximilian II, um, the Holy Roman Emperor, sends a diplomatic party to Istanbul. And the then ambassador wants a Lutheran chaplain. And what is the single most important Lutheran city in 16, later 16th century Germany? It's not Wittenberg, it's Tübingen. Mm. So they send a letter to the theology faculty of Tübingen and they choose a guy named Stefan Gerlach as their chaplain. And this was a student of Crucius. So what Crucius did, he gave him two letters addressed to the patriarch. And in one, he, basi and in one, he basically revealed what, why he wanted to reach out. He wanted to reach out to um, learn what was left of this ancient learning and to figure out whether he and um, the Greek Orthodox Church were somehow in agreement in terms of religion. So had, there, had um, this ambassador never decided to um, look for a Lutheran chaplain, but a Catholic one, perhaps Crusade had never had the opportunity to um, write to the, to the patriarch. So then when Gerlach ends up in uh, Constantinople, or in Istanbul, Constantinople, it takes months for him to get an audition with the patriarch. And then finally, months after he arrives, he delivers the letters. And then the patriarch leaves to go on a visitation of, his, of the churches in his realm. Um, so initially, it seems that this correspondence is doomed. But then somehow, and to my surprise, and to, many, to the surprise of many of these Lutherans, the patriarch did write back. And I think this is something that's perhaps a little bit more remarkable than people may realize is because the Lutherans in the 16th century were not yet a defined movement. I mean, many people in Europe, and certainly in the Catholic world, thought the Lutherans were heretics and, and schismatics. And it, it was far from given that the Greek Orthodox patriarch, the head of a venerable and ancient institution, would look kindly on a group of Christians who believed that the Pope was wrong. Um, it was possible, but it was not a given. Mm. So um, it's a very serendipitous story, really. Did Crucius write in Greek? Yes, he did. Yeah. And then people always ask me, what kind of Greek? And here the story becomes a bit messy. So essentially, Crucius uh, was perhaps the single most um, important professor of Greek in the 16th century in terms of teaching. So he, his lectures were so, his lectures on Homer were so popular that the university had somehow at some point decided to break down uh, the wall of a lecture theater to accommodate all of the students. Mm. And he was also the first to teach modern Greek, what we would call modern Greek, but, but essentially was a, a, a type of Greek vernacular at a European university in the 16th century. Mm. And the kind of Greek that he used to write to the patriarch is a mixture of classical Greek and sort of ecclesiastical Greek. Kind of because a lot of the language obviously is, is theological yeah. in nature, but the rest was all a variation of classical Greek, really. Right, that sounds fascinating. I have to get that letter and read it. Uh, is it published? It is published, yeah. I, I'll send it to you. Um, it was published a year, um, as part of the whole correspondence with the patriarch is published Good. in uh, 1585 from the top of my head. Good. So in addition to his historical slash strategic interests um, and theological um, initiatives, Crucius had other interests in contacting uh, Greek speakers. And you talk about these a little bit, um, such like, you know, in his interest in, in classics and in language. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so again, as I mentioned, Crucius was the first um, to um, teach the Greek vernacular at a European university. He was the first Westerner, actually, since antiquity to call himself a Philolene. And he 
says in many different letters and documents that he loved everything Greek. Um, and sometimes he was drunk on Greek. So he really was someone who had an extraordinary passion for, for, for things Greek, and especially the Greek language. Um, so this is slightly anecdotal, but such a good anecdote that I have to tell it. So for decades, Crucius went to the local church in Tübingen, and he took notes of all the sermons delivered in German. Mm-hmm. And those notes were in ancient Greek. And he did this while kneeling in the church. And he, he writes, and there are, nine, there is, there are 19 um, uh, manuscripts with notes to 7,000 sermons. Wow. And smaller notes, longer notes, all of them in ancient Greek. Wow. And he said he did this to practice himself in note-taking. Um, to avoid the devil, uh, to avoid um, that the devil will make him uh, his thoughts wonder, because he should obviously be listening to what wow. um, was being preached, but also um, to encourage his students in in this good practice. So he had an extraordinary command of the ancient Greek language, and he was extremely interested in learning what had happened with the Greek language after antiquity. So he collected a lot of um, Byzantine chronicles, but also Byzantine saint lives and other um, letters from the Byzantine period, uh, other documents from the Byzantine period and letters from 15th to 16th century to kind of understand what varieties of Greek there were. He wanted to know what languages, what 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 type of of Greek was spoken um, on various Greek islands. He wanted to know how Greeks pronounce certain things. So he yes. was interested in all sorts of aspects of the Greek language. Yeah, um, that's an interesting anecdote. I don't know if that would work with our students today. Uh, probably not, yeah. <laughs> as a Greek prose comp exercise. Um, so how did he use Eustathius of Thessaloniki in particular in reading Homer? You said that his Homer lectures were among the most popular and Eustathius is the single largest commentary on Homer, I think still ever written. Um, is a 12th century scholar in Thessaloniki. So how did he use that text? Yeah, so again, this is one of the, one of those texts that has survived from Crucis' library, and it is rich and rich in annotation. It's a, the, the 16th century edition that he used was a three-volume edition that he read in the course of 20 years. So the first note is from somewhere around 1560, and the last note from sometime around 1580. So he took his time. He took his time, that's for sure. And what we see is that Crucius used Astatius um, uh, really as a guide. Um, so although we also have his Homer copy, and we can see that he could easily read Homer on, on his own without any guidance, he still turned to this Byzantine, this monumental Byzantine commentary to figure out a great many things about Homer, including sort of more biographical aspect of who the person of Homer was, but also, again, for historical reasons. Um, so one of the great strengths of Eustathius is that he offers insight into sort of rhetorical um, scheme, sort of the, the rhetoric in um, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, but also he offers all kinds of allegories, some of whom we no longer believe, but people at the time in, 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 in the Byzantine period, but also in the early modern period, thought were deeply, deeply um, mesmerizing. And what we can clearly see that Crucius read Eusta- uh, Homer through the lens of Eustatius of Thessaloniki. This comes to the fore perhaps most clearly in the fact that Crucius never published a commentary on an ancient author, even though he taught them for about 40, 50 years. But he did, apart from a um, short commentary on Homer. And some of the passages, some of the allegories, and some of the the kind of rhetorical aspects of the characters in the Iliad that that Crucius copies in his commentary Mm -hmm. come directly from Eustatius. So what we see then is that really this Byzantine text was the guide for Crucius to build his own commentary. Yeah, and for members of the audience who may recall, back in mid-2020, I uh, posted an episode, a discussion with uh, Bauke Vandenberg, whose book on Eustathius on Homer has just come out a few months ago. So you can listen to that episode or read the book, uh, which is precisely about how Eustathius read Homer through this rhetorical lens. you know, using the um, categories of analysis from the rhetorical tradition. Uh, That's a fascinating uh, topic, too. And I think I'm going to be teaching a graduate seminar on Homeric scholarship later uh, 
no, next year. Um, so I'm going to dive back into that material. So I might actually even look at Crucius a, a bit um, because I, I, I think it's very interesting that the modern European traditions of scholarship kind of pick up, they hook up and pick up from the middle and late Byzantine ones, um, which, you know, many classes tend to forget today. But anyway, <laughs> are you going to have a chapter in your book on this, like his Homeric scholarship? No, unfortunately not. That, that turn, I, I would like to, I, this is how it originated the project. But oh. I think ultimately, yeah, I was interested in, in readers of Homer in early modern Europe. And then it turns out a lot of people were working on this already. So I decided to focus more on Crucius the person. And the aspect that I studied most is obviously his kind of classical scholarship and his teaching. And I decided to focus on aspects of the story that have not received any attention at all. Right, um, right. But okay. maybe I'll write a, a chapter about this at some point. Um, so I wanted to pick up uh, on something that you said earlier, which was how he tried to reconstruct Byzantine history from scratch, right? Now, methodologically, we all like to think that we base our you know, readings and our conclusions on the sources. I'm like, no, I go back to the sources. And I keep telling myself this, but I take for granted in fact, it's difficult to appreciate just how much we rely on this accumulated apparatus of scholarship that has built up over the centuries, you know, not to mention all the you know, dictionaries and chronologies and histories and everything, right? So we're, this is an accumulative process. And we are now at the point where, you know, we, um, we disagree about a couple of years here or there. <laughs> Or some very minor text, does, does it belong to this author or that author? Some very, very trivial points about genealogy, right? But without that apparatus, it looks wild. Like to actually try to go back to like a, a 16th century printing of Zonaras or Joniatis and try to reconstruct like the 12th century is mind boggling. Like just the sheer number of Pisakios Komnignos <laughs> that you encounter, how do you keep them straight, right? And so you wrote uh, quite a bit in here about this sheer struggle of his to lay down the basic foundations. So can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of problems that he was trying to solve and, and his methodology for going about it? How did he try to put this material into some sort of order? Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess maybe the piece that I wrote was also reflective of my own struggles in the archive, trying yes. to make sense of Cruz's massive amounts of material. Because I think maybe it's important to mention that, you know, he had about 40 to 50 of these documents, um, these histories and, 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 and manuscript texts. Some of these are hundreds of pages long. Some of those are not written in standard Greek. Wait, wait let me rephrase. Like, none of this was written in a standardized form of Greek. Um, Greek printing was still in its infancy in some in some ways, and you know there were all sorts of ligatures and abbreviations mm. that made reading the, the even reading the script very difficult, let alone the content. So I think that's the most basic element first is to, to realize that you know the the sheer layout and 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 was already challenging. Then there was the content, and Crucius was obviously someone well-versed in ancient history. But what do you do? Like, where does it, how, do, how did that story continue? Where did you start? Unfortunately, it's unclear which book Crucius read first, because he didn't date all of his books. But by kind of comparing the text, we can really get a sense that he read most of this material in the 1560s, 1570s, partly because he started to teach on Homer and he read Eustatius. But then Eustatius is not someone who was just a commentator on Homer. Obviously, as um, Bishop of Thessaloniki, he was also a historical figure in his own right. So what Crucis did, he applied what is called with a technical term biobibliography in the first instance. So that's to figure out who the author was of a book, what the goal of the book was, and to sort of situate the author mm -hmm. in their particular historical moment and in the kind of longer literary and scholarly tradition. So that meant Crucis always looked up who the bio, um, what other biographies, either in Latin, Greek, or other languages were available when the author lived, even when that was unclear. And again, like you said, that's still unclear today for some authors. Mm. So mo sometimes it's guesswork. So that's the what's he, what he first tried to do is to figure out who was writing when and what area did it cover. 
Then there is this massive problem with most Byzantine chronicles that, that we no longer read. It's a lot of them start with creation. Um, and then they kind of march through history in a very rapid pace to arrive at, say, the 11th century. And then they treat that in a little bit more depth. Mm -hmm. So first of all, what, what we see Crucis is doing is to kind of collate and figure out when the, the start, when the world started and when Christian history started. That's the first step he did. And he basically did this through comparison. So comparison is hugely important. So when we look at all of the title pages of the books, what we see is that he often writes the dates of certain authors, but also the, the dates um, that when certain books in, uh, begin. So when creation begins to according to this tone, testimony, or when creation begins according to that testimony. So a lot of it is collating and comparison. Then there is obviously the fact that a lot of these writers overlap. So for instance, a famous example um, that Crucis also knew was that Sonaras and Anaconena kind of in their works wrote a little bit um, about the same period. And that is the uh, reign of Alexios I, who I think died in 1118, and he mm -hmm. ruled from um, 1081 to 1118. And by reading those texts, Crucis realized that Zonaras had probably borrowed his material from the Alexiot, from Anaconena. So there we already see that he had a sense of the kind of collating that was necessary and to kind of create, creating maybe um, a step, what we would call a stemma, so a kind of um, scheme to realize who was borrowing from whom. So that's, I think, the second step to figure out not only who is writing what, but also who is borrowing from whom and where one story ends and where the other story picks up. So what he did is, in a lot of these title pages, basically also creating lists of authors and historians. So then we have first have Sonaras, then Anaconena. Then we have, um, oh, sorry, actually, first we have an author called um, Hedrenos, who, is a, um, who wrote the Synopsis Historion, which is basically a story from creation to 1057. Then we have the history of Anaconena, then the history of Sonaras. And then we have Nikitas Honiatis, who picks up exactly where the Alexiad lived, uh, mm -hmm. uh, left off. So in that sense, what Crucis was doing is reading these books, annotating them, and creating on the title page of, of, of many of these books a kind of um, list, simply a list. So that, those are the first two steps. And then obviously there was the content. Um, how do you make sense of all of the massive amounts of sultans and Byzantine rulers? And that's where genealogy played a role, which I already mentioned in kind of this, this mm -hmm. stemma. But what he also did is, there was, like you said, there was hardly any help. But what he did try to do is basically read everything there was to read about um, imperial houses in Europe. Because a lot of these, a lot of times the Byzantine house was either through marriage or through contacts connected to other um, uh, imperial families. So we see that he reads Latin histories. We see he reads vernacular histories. And every person mentioned there that he re recognizes from his readings of, of Greek materials and Byzantine materials, he then copies in the margin to kind of create cross-reference across all of these books. And just mind you, this is a massive amount of material. So every book in Crucis' studies, basically every Byzantine book, has dozens of, of cross-references. Unfortunately, he never created a synthesis, so it's unclear to me to what extent in his mind it all makes sense, made sense. But we can clearly see that he used those kinds of tools that were being discovered right at the time about cross-referencing, biobibliography, genealogy. He used all of those scholarly tools to basically navigate his way through what, what was called like a labyrinth of books. Now, I'm guessing that the history of the Crusades might have provided a scaffold on which to hang a lot of this because, you know, you have the first crusade is linked to Alexius, like in Western sources the second to Manuel, the third to Zacchaeus Angelos, right? So was he using Western accounts of the Crusades passing through to kind of try to pin the Eastern narratives to a single chronology? Yeah, there's some evidence he, that, he did knew, uh, that he did know about um, Western uh, histories of the Crusades. However, mm -hmm. somewhat to my surprise, this is not the overarching frame. Huh. So when I looked at his books... 
And usually the title page is where you would want to look because that's where um, Crucis often leaves the most essential information. There's hardly any reference to the Crusades. Huh. And, that, and that I found extremely surprising. Um, of course, um, 1204 was mentioned, just like 1453 was mentioned. You know, And these other monumental events were also mentioned. But they seem to be not like the standout events that they are now, but more part of a longer... Um, longer history of, of, of European slash Middle Eastern interactions. And in that sense, I guess his history was very different from ours. Now, I'm intrigued by what you said at the beginning that your work on Crucius kind of mirrors his work on these Byzantine authors. So if I understand correctly, you're basically pouring through his books and reading his handwritten comments in the margins or on the title page to reconstruct his reconstructions, right? So you're doing all this primary work, right? Yeah, I get, yeah, that's very true. Are his and comments was, in Greek or German or what? A mixture. And this made it extremely hard. So most of his notes are actually in Latin. Latin was his first language of learning. Oh, yes. However, sometimes he changes mid-sentence, sometimes into German, sometimes into Greek. And there's no way of telling why. Um, I mean, I've tried to like compare some of the notes, but I couldn't figure out if there was any, you know, uh, logic to the to, to, like method to the madness. I guess. Yes. Oh um, boy. Oh wow. Are you okay? <laughs> I am okay. I will say though, the um, I had some guidance in the the form of a um, catalog of all of Cruz's documents that was drawn up by a man called Thomas Wilhelmi, who was a professor in who was a professor in Heidelberg, mm. and that doc that made it at least to me. Um, clear what documents were there and how like what byzantine books i could call up from the library once i opened them it was uh yeah a wilderness excellent what did he think of the quality of the greek that he was reading in these byzantine texts yeah and here the story takes a, a different turn i guess so i already <laughs> hinted at this that crucius saw a, a world in decline so when crucius wrote to turco graecia he did he did this was not a neutral term he thought that Greek was what he called uh, Greece was what he called Turkified, so it's basically taken over by um, the Ottomans, and he believed that um, the Greek world was in decline. Essentially, the language had become corrupted, and their religion, the, the religion of the Greeks, was marred by all sorts of superstitions. So he essentially was very uh, drew a very negative conclusion, a very pessimistic conclusion, based on. Well, it was actually essentially a very rich corpus of material. And he was not pleased by what he saw, especially um, concerning the Greek language. And here we see Crucis really as a purist. For him, the purity of ancient Greek was unmatched. Again, it is not clear what for, what for Crucis was the pinnacle of Greek, obviously because every mm -hmm. student of Greek knows that there is no one form of Greek. But Crucis believes that somehow the, the Greek of Plato or Thucydides or um, antiquity in general, but in uh, unspecified ways, that that Greek was pure Greek and um, that everything that deviated from that ancient norm was a corruption. So a lot of the word he used was called barbaro graica, basically barbarian Greek. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of his colleagues used that term as well, actually. So he was very um, pessimistic about um, all of these corruptions. And he did not only see those in, um, in the Greek text that he was reading, he also saw it in the ortho um, orthography. So basically... Um, the way Greek uh, texts were spelled was also something Crucis disapproved of because there was all these vowel shifts that reflected um, vernacular Greek and, and, and basically changes in how the Greek language was spoken that then also um, made their way to how Greek was written and none of that um, pleased Crucis. So he was very, very um, dismissive of some of the um, texts that he, he read in terms of language. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I often wonder about this kind of phenomenon, especially when people refer to the purity of a language, because I'm not entirely sure what the epistemological standard for measuring purity in anything is. I mean, you, you have to have a standard. And if you say, OK, my standard for Greek or Attic Greek is, I don't know, Plato or Demosthenes, then by circular logic, anything that's adjacent to those texts is pure. And OK, and if it's not, it's not. 
uh, but there's not some sort of objective standard outside your data set that you that you can bring to any a language anyway it's kind of weird and what's also interesting here is that um the story is so ironic. Crucius calls himself a philoline, a lover of the Greek language. He knew that language has changed over time. Yeah, yeah. He was very attentive to regional diversity. And somehow none of that richness could convince him that this was simply how languages evolved. Even by comparing Homer to Plato, he should have realized that the Greek language had never been stable, that purity had never really existed in one singular form. And yet that's what he concluded. And in that sense, this is a story full of paradoxes. Yeah, or it might just be human. I mean, I, yeah. well, you know, I'm 50 now. And honestly, the things that I see going on in the English language make me into a grumpy old philologist. It's like, ah, oh, you're <laughs> not supposed to do. No, I, I get it. Um, but this is something, you know, I've seen in my lifetime. To, to be grumpy about something that's happened over the course of 2000 years is kind of odd anyway. Um, but would you say that, so we see in Crucius some of the sort of fascination with Greek history and language and, and Byzantine history that gives rise to eventually specialized professional disciplines. But we also find, you know, some of the prejudices that got baked into those fields. They're all there, right? Exactly. All right. Um, so any final thoughts about Martin Crucis? So where do you leave us? So your book will be coming out in a couple of years and you're still working on it. I would look forward to it very much. Uh, but you want to leave our audience with any sort of final thoughts about the man, the period, the the projects that he was engaged in? Where are we now? Yeah, I, I, that's a, one thing, of course, is like, go read his works. Um, and I guess in the future, go read my work. But I think one of the things that I found extremely rewarding about working on a complete unknown person, because Crucis is not only unknown in uh, for Byzantine historians, he's unknown in early modern circles. Mm -hmm. He was like, no one has ever had ever written about him. And then I was lucky enough in the archive to have this rich amount of material that obviously um, it was sometimes difficult to um, figure out how to navigate through all of this material, but it was so rewarding. And, I think if we really want to get a sense of the richness and layeredness of the past, it's extremely useful to compare printed sources with manuscript sources. So one of the richest sources that I use was Crucius's nine-volume diary of basically a thousand pages each, in which he recorded in great and granular detail everything that happened to his life. And to be, to be able to reconstruct in its full richness a story of a single individual, a scholar, who was in many ways very human, like you and me, that to me made a very deeply, uh, very deep impression. And that moved me greatly. And it also made me realize like my own position as an academic. And in that sense, I can only recommend doing that kind of work to descend on the archives and look at scholars' as private materials. It's very important work. You know, and I, I find it... It's relevant even to discussions about like Orientalism like and the Orientalist tradition in the 19th century, where it's it's easy and legitimate to call out the biases and all of this. But you have to also acknowledge the hard work that he put into reconstructing a very, very different culture than his own. Um, and and yeah, his love for it, even though it was accompanied by, you know, kind of you know, some negative uh, ideas and, and who doesn't I'd have those. But anyway, I, I, I think that I, I appreciate hard work, good. It, you know, especially when it's done overtly in it for a good purpose. And and so I, I want to learn more about this person. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. And this has been such a great series of, of, of podcasts. And I am very honored to be contributing to one. Oh, thank you very much. No, I really loved your, your chapter in, in the book. And I immediately made a note. Huh, there I am making notes in the <laughs> someone might write a history of this podcast by looking at exactly. my little notes. Okay. Um so thank you, Richard. It was a pleasure. Thanks, uh, Anthony. Thank you.